0: Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that acknowledges life's highs, its lows and everything in between.
1: Today, I'm chatting to Gabby Logan. I was trying to be kind of positive and seize the day in lots of ways, you know, making myself busy, doing everything I could to kind of have a full and great life that I was living, rushing through life, but at the same time not really connecting with things, you know, so... I think if you if you rush, you don't necessarily see things, you don't necessarily breathe, you don't take things in. And so there's probably a couple of years without breathing.
0: Gabby's been a much-loved fixture on our TVs for over 25 years. But behind the exciting exterior of presenting the Olympics and hosting her own incredibly popular podcast, there's been real tragedy and grief. She's written a book, The First Half. Oh, my God, I love this book which details everything from the difficulties of coping with her father's alcoholism to the hilarious sliding doors moment that saw her meeting her husband, Kenny. Gabby came round to mine over the summer. Oh my God, it was so fricking hot. (laughs) I can't even describe how hot it was. I'd encourage you to cast your mind back to the extreme heat waves we were experiencing. Imagine it, but in a small airtight room which is this tiny shed studio I have in the garden. It was so sweaty. We stood up and we were dripping, quite frankly. It was horrific. Anyway, I thought I'd tell you that just so you could feel sorry for us.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: Gabby Logan, who's you know, currently looking at this terribly bound copy of your amazing book. I was lucky enough to get an early preview, but it's obviously the one where it's not all laminated. It looks like somebody
1: sellotaped it together for you. <laughs> they
0: have. But I'm so lucky to have had an early copy and I loved reading it. I loved it. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, well, first of all,
1: how are you? I'm very well. Yeah, very well. It's been a busy summer of sport yes. um, and it's going to continue all the way through because we've got the World Cup coming up as well. So it's just, you know, it just rolls on and on.
0: I mean, are you still buzzing from the Euros? Because that was just
1: the most phenomenal moment. It was and it was unexpected in a way. I don't mean that their success was unexpected, but I, at the beginning of it, people would say to me, do you think they can win? And, well, Yeah, I think they can win. You know, whether they do is another thing. But what was unexpected was the reaction. It was just so joyous and how people really embraced it and the, the the atmosphere in the stadiums all the way through was incredible I'd come out into the you know the street outside waiting to kind of get into a car to go home and I didn't want to leave because people were just loving it and that's not the case when you go to a lot of other football matches you know mm-hmm. and think back to last summer's men's Euros that yeah. definitely wasn't the case so all the way through there was this lovely feeling of kind of togetherness and people enjoying the performances and then To cap it all off, that dramatic final and what those Lionesses did, I just think it was one of the great moments in sport, really. Never mind women's sport, never mind football. No, it was
0: the greatest. I wept. I wept watching when the Lionesses were sort of running around the pitch and celebrating and you could feel that euphoria. I had this really unexpected sort of visceral reaction to it where I was weeping, but I sort of felt it in my bones for women and like the women in my ancestry and this feeling and i had to really like sit and try and process it after because i'm not a, a massive sort of dedicated football fan i'll watch the big matches like many people out there and get carried away with that and and the unity that that brings but i felt this in my bones for women because it, it was like everybody was looking at women for the right reason it wasn't about what they look like or judging them or their intellect it was these women have trained so hard and all of that work has paid off and this is their moment for us to just
1: watch them to add to that as well in a totally you know concur with what you're saying is also the the dna the history of those women you know some of those women that 50 years ago couldn't play the game Mm -hmm. but carried on and kept fighting and paid for themselves to play for england and bought their own kit and defied the fa saying they couldn't play you know For those women, for the generations that kind of did it, not even semi-professional, you know, they held jobs down in the day, they were playing football in the evenings, they weren't welcome in football grounds. You know, I think you could really feel that history. And those lionesses have got a great sense of that as well, of their legacy. You know, I mean, the younger ones, you kind of have to... They're 23, they've just played football. They don't, you know, fully fully understand what's happened before. But some of the older ones have been through both generations. Yeah. And that was really special, I think, to to really feel that history coming to the fore that day.
0: Yeah, I mean... They're... Obviously, there's been a huge shift in attitude and in you know how we see women in sport in general, but specifically football, because of everything that you've just said but it still feels disproportionately imbalanced in a way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's going to change over the years to come?
1: Yeah, I think it will. I think what's happened is a realisation that, you know, you can be entertained by women's football. You know, there was always this narrative that, well, women are not going to be as strong, as quick, as skillful as, you know, all those things that were thrown. We watch plenty of sport that men and women both play and admire them. Take tennis, right? You go to the slams. You don't say, oh, I'm going to turn down a women's final ticket because you know you're going to be entertained it's great sport and I think what's happened is there's been a shift in lots of people's minds and a lot of male kind of sports watchers minds as well which I think is really important because Mm. both you know, we need men and women to both enjoy women's football. Yeah. Where they realised actually I can be entertained by this and stop comparing it to men's football. Yeah. And as my husband kept saying, well, he's always loved women's football. He comes from he's a he was a rugby player, but he comes from a background of kind of no nonsense, you know, and he hates male footballers rolling around on the pitch pretending yeah. to be injured. And he's like, the Women never do that, you know? It's, he's like, I never see a woman doing that. They don't ever, you know, kind of do this whole drama no. kind of queen thing where they're pretending that they've been kicked.
0: No, we have periods every month. <laughs> we haven't got enough shit. To deal with. We're gonna be running around and someone kicks it in the shin. It's like, are you kidding me?
1: So all of that, I think, has lent itself a kind of um an opportunity where mm. people clearly brands and you know corporate relationships all those things are going to improve because yeah. people want to be aligned to the women's game Absolutely. because of all those values and then that will help the sport to grow I think what happens now what needs to happen now if this is going to be kind of more than just a moment in time is opportunity needs to be more widespread you know not just pockets in the country if girls go to school in Devon and Cornwall and you know up in the Highlands and Islands they should have the opportunity like the boys at their school to play football it shouldn't be something that you just because a headmaster decides it it should be something that is widely available mm. to all girls absolutely
0: i love that At my kids' school, they've got quite a good open policy with that. There are some boys that have chosen netball over football and girls that have chosen football over netball. And that's sort of quite welcomed. And Mm. it's such a great thing to see that the younger generations won't have this strange concept of girls do one sport and boys do another. It will be much more intuitive with what the individual wants to do, which is so positive.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at the way the sport grew in America and uh, men's and women's football pretty much grew at the same rate because it came to the country at the same time yeah. and while they, they, they did have a professional male league before they did women's women played from the start so they never saw it as a man's sport and and does it surprise you that they are the outstanding nation in the world at football for women you know <laughs> because yeah. they haven't had that break in history so I think if it's it's just the kind of prism through which we view it isn't it and, and because we've historically gone oh this is something for men you know which is just ridiculous isn't yeah. it and, and now now we can see that that's not the case, and yeah. we can enjoy it. It's like and there was a moment. um I think it was the 2016 Olympics. So my son uh, Reuben would have been about 13, and I saw him watching uh, the women's rugby, the sevens. I came into the kitchen, he was watching. I said, "Oh, I'm so proud you're watching women's sport," and he's like. It's just good sport. He, yeah. he did not see it as yeah, women's so sevens. Great. Yeah. And so I think you like you say about the younger generation, they won't see the no. difference.
0: I mean, um, I was saying to Honey, who's seven, I was going, This is such an important day for women and girls. And she was like, All right, like, what are you on about? But but that's a good thing. Like we want this just to all go away and feminism not to even exist, or or words of those yeah. of with that meaning. That everything's just an even playing field and there's a throughout. So it's bloody amazing start though to such a big shift it's so so cool yeah um so let's talk about this exceptional book the first half so this was written during the pandemic yeah at a time where initially i think like most people you felt a slight panic like what the hell am i going to do and that led to this immense moment of reflection for you to look over the first half of your life and everything that's been before what was that process like because obviously you've got to face the beautiful the big the bold moments but also the really tough challenging Mm. things that you don't want to poke around in and look
1: at and knowing where to start as well you know because I knew I wanted to I wanted to write it for a long time or something of that ilk for a long time and I just never had the time and so Kenny, my husband, was like, you've got time now. Just go right. You know, the kids were doing their GCSEs um, their first year. So they were on Zooms all day long. I didn't have that horrible stress that a lot of people had with like small children homeschooling. Mine, mine were just getting okay. on with it. Yeah. So I was really lucky. I had a lot of time. Their day yeah. was eight till four. Wow. So I had a long day. I'd make lunch for everybody. We'd have these kind of ridiculous, huge lunches every day, you know, because everybody, well, the kids were expecting a school dinner, you know, so <laughs> I was practically doing kind of apple pie and custard. Oh, and, um, and then we were all, getting on with our day and working and I had this very disciplined day which was brilliant because it lent itself to kind of sitting down and just knuckling down and writing but I really struggled to get going you know with the actual what are the first words going to be and so I just said to myself would I just write and see what happens and so I start at quite a kind of seminal moment in my life which and then as the book kind of evolved I've wanted then to have a theme that kind of ran through and realized that sport was important in my life but not this is not a book about you know statistics and kind of match reports it's just the way that sport has kind of empowered and also brought sadness and joy and you know opportunity I think and a husband and a husband yeah (laughs) And that and was a me. good opportunity. Yeah. That was a great one.
0: We'll get to Kenny a bit later, your wonderful <laughs> husband. Um but as you said, you know, you, you had to face some seriously challenging moments. And the opening moment that you've just spoken about, a seminal moment that impacted your life and still does today, is the death of your brother, who was only a teenager at the time, completely unexpected, shook your family mm-hmm. to the core. I mean, how was that to, to revisit that moment in that minutiae, that detail, to sort of sit and and to really explore that time of your life?
1: I the the amazing thing was how clear everything was. You know, it was um, so it was about twenty eight years. It's just gone thirty years. It was about twenty eight years it happened since it happened, and yet I could still picture myself sitting on the bed when the phone rang, my mum telling me, and I could still picture myself that afternoon in a gym. You know, when you read the book, you'll understand why that's kind of relevant. And I could still smell through the windows, the barbecues that were going on in the street where I lived and all those things came flooding back. And so when I sent the the chapter to my mum, because you don't want to get anything wrong that's so precious, you know, in that moment. She never sent back any corrections and said, you know, this didn't happen or I didn't do this or you didn't do that. You know, it was it was just um, a very real it was very real again for me, I think. Um, And of course, I've talked about it over the years, but never really in such detail. And I suppose you're looking at it from really the fa- the whole kind of family picture and where everybody was and what everybody, because it was a sudden death. I mean, the, you know, he was literally playing football one minute and he was dead the next. And, you know, at 15 years old, that's not the natural order of things. And it wasn't, he wasn't even playing in a football match. He was playing in the garden and and my parents were getting ready to go out for dinner and life could not have been better or more normal or, you know, everything in the world was good. You know, everybody was happy. And I remember my mum telling me, a few months before, she'd been in Thailand on a holiday with my dad. The first time they'd gone away as a couple pretty much their whole lives and um, because my youngest brother was six and they'd, I was away having my gap year. My sister was modelling in Japan. Daniel had just got this contract to play for Leeds United and she said there was this moment where she said to my dad, they've got their wings, they're flying. And, um, and that was kind of, you know, the beginning of the rest of their lives as well, you know, because their kids were on their way. And so it was just brutal you know yeah
0: thank you for sharing that because it's um you know I know from talking to my husband who's you know he lost his mum a long time ago that grief it undulates it's not there constantly but it it doesn't go no it's not like talking about this stuff is easier and I know especially when you're writing it has almost a different flavor when you're looking back at your past because it's unedited it's unfiltered you're you can do it privately Mm. intimately So you can really get to the bones of of how you feel Mm. and and what that experience was like. Did you uncover anything from that process about your own grief or, or understand your own grief a bit better in that process?
1: yeah I think i i I uncovered stuff about me, but also then I started to look at what was going on with everybody else around us and and the fallout of of his death is is still really there in our family you know because it resulted eventually in divorce and as I talk about my dad you know has a problem with alcohol and all of that was exacerbated and other things in relationships and so when you start to kind of write about it and unpick things and you realize you look back and think My dad should have had counselling. My dad should have spoken to somebody. Why did we, you know, I mean, even us, nobody spoke to us, you know. It just wasn't the way back then. And even us as kids and definitely my mum was on a journey. So she was searching for her own counsel, if you like, you know, and she was offering it to my dad. But he just was very reluctant. And and I think nowadays that just wouldn't happen. You know, it would he would probably have more of an acceptance that it's okay to talk to somebody. But then it just, you know, he was a footballer. He was a hard guy. He was this tough bloke. He was not going to sit down and open up about how he felt. Instead, he just shut himself off. And and so when I started writing, I felt enormous sympathy and empathy towards him and understanding of why, you know, his life has evolved the way it has. It doesn't make it any easier. No. But I don't have any blame or any desire to kind of like, you know, castigate him or, you know, that that's, that's just how it was. And then also, you know, you look at your siblings and kind of how everybody deals with things is so different. So yeah, writing it down really did kind of put all those things into sharp focus. And I was so young, you know, and I look back and think, God, I was 19 years old and this huge thing that was really going to shape my future in many ways had come along. And I didn't realise at the time, I think, People say to you, Does it change you? Well, at 19, you're still changing, aren't you? So yeah. you don't really know what you would have been or who you would have been. But now I look back and when I was writing and realize, of course, yeah. it massively shaped who mm. I was and what I was going to be.
0: As well as that grief, did you have anxiety that followed? Because having something happen out of the blue like that, that you're not expecting, it might not be grief for some people, it might just be something shocking and awful. I've certainly had stuff like that happen in my life. And it's hard to not have some sort of aftermath mm. or, or hangover of anxiety that you sort of carry around with you because you don't feel safe, you don't mm. feel grounded in everything's going to mm. be okay, because you've had a moment where the rug has been pulled. Mm. And you're almost second guessing when that's mm. going to happen again. Have you had to deal? Yeah, with?
1: Yeah, I, definitely, I I, it's almost the opposite, isn't it? Of kind of you, you then think everything isn't going to be okay, yeah. and you're waiting for the next kind of disaster, or you're not wanting to love anything or anybody because they're going to get taken away from you, or you're not wanting to really invest kind of yourself into something because. Why would I bother doing that when, you know, this is and I had two different kind of examples with my parents. because My dad was very much the glass is is half empty and my mom was the glass is half full. And so and I was trying to be kind of positive and seize the day in lots of ways, you know, making myself busy, doing everything I could to kind of have a full and, you know, great life that I was living for two or three, you know, and just rushing through life. But at the same time, not really connecting with things, you know, so. I think if you if you rush you don't necessarily see things, you don't necessarily breathe, you don't take things in. And so there's probably a couple of years without breathing, mm. you know, without without just going, okay, this is, you know, this is who I am. And and I don't blame that 19-year-old no, you're person coping. at all. You're yeah. Trying to cope. It was but it did all kind of come to sharp focus when I got to university and I think it was my first year exams when I really crashed and um I was just crying on my bed, you know, and kind of on my own and feeling lost, but not wanting to show anybody who I was with at university that face. And a doctor, I went to see him, I said, I can't sleep. And he just gave me sleeping tablets without even looking at my face. You know, he didn't ask me any questions. And at that point, when I was writing, I realised I got to that stage at 20, gone through the Bradford fire as a kid, gone through my brother's death. And nobody had ever sat down and said, do you think you should go and speak to somebody about all these things that you, the trauma that you're probably carrying with you? And it was probably, and I realised that wasn't a good route to take, the sleeping tablets. So yeah. I kind of got rid of those. And and then it took me a couple of years before I did meet somebody who I could, a therapist basically, who I could start to kind of unravel things. And I think it was absolutely the right time, you know, for for me. I, I'm glad it was then, you know, my early 20s and I didn't wait till my early 40s or my early 50s because I think patterns of behaviour start to set in and that could be damaging behaviour physically, emotionally, mentally. And I was really lucky to find somebody who could help me kind of make sense of everything.
0: I mean, you talk about some very um, important people in your life who have helped, helped you heal, helped guide you since. Um, one of them is Ed Percival. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about him, how he helped you? I, I know it was more professionally, mm. but that's obviously spilled into how you yeah. live your actual life yeah. as well. Yeah,
1: so when I went to Sky, I, I, I was in local radio for a year after university, and then I had this really kind of sliding doors moment and ended up at Sky Sports within about a month of leaving. Well, I hadn't even left the radio. I was thinking, I need to get to London somehow for my career, and then Ended up at Sky a month later. It was kind of very fortuitous. And Sky were employing a lot of new presenters. They hadn't really had many women on screen. And they had this guy who was going to come in and help train us all to present. But he was a neuro linguistic processing kind of guy. And that was his background. He was actually a background in, I think, back in the day, he'd been a car salesman. Then he worked for British um, Basketball Association. He had all these different hats he'd worn. And when I met Ed, he was probably in his mid to late 50s. And there was I, kind of 22 years old, you know, thinking that I'd arrived. I was in London. I was working for Sky Sports. And and he kind of not. I don't know, something with him and we connected, you know, so he was doing his job with me, which was to help me learn to present and how to, you know, to behave on camera. But he was also a very avuncular kind of character, almost paternalistic in terms of a life guide, you know, and just being, and he introduced me to a woman called Wendy Mandy, who is an acupuncturist. Who I love. Um, who um, who I then started seeing, and she was the therapist I spoke to. So it was through Ed I met Wendy, and so, and he wasn't. I'd said to him, "Oh, my skin's really bad. I I used to have a bit of acupuncture when I was in Newcastle." He said, Oh, I know a really good acupuncturist. And I thought I was going to Wendy to have a few needles stuck in me. And, you know, she'd walk out the door and make herself a cup of tea. I didn't know how she operated and how she worked. And, yeah. And so I had a completely different experience. And it was a talking therapy, really, and an amazing, enlightening experience. But Ed stayed kind of as part of my, you know, life almost through. I left Sky after two years, but Ed came to our wedding. He used to help Kenny a lot. He was always there for me in big moments I'd call him and just for reassurance or just we'd have a discussion about something to do with performance. And he was one of those people that you know, when you look back and you've Somebody occasionally puts a hand out for you in life, don't they? And they kind of pull you through and guide you to another place. And Ed was that person. And his, if his wife Val is listening to this, she'll be, um, I think, imagine by now she'd probably be shedding a tear because I think she knows how much I loved Ed and we loved Ed. And, um, and his family, you know, had a very special man. And when he left way too soon, you know, he was too young. I, it, I can't tell you, you don't realise what a hole somebody like that leaves in your life. It was yeah. really... Um, It's been nearly ten years, I think, and I was. I keep saying to Kenny, I I want to ring Ed about this. Do you know what I mean? It's you know those people that you just. It's like that mentorship, isn't it? Like having
0: someone where there's there's almost clear boundaries of what I can ask you for, and and if you can't facilitate that, then it there's it's absolutely fine but having someone that you know will give you advice that isn't based on their own nostalgia or... Or their own own Yeah, their own interest their own emotion. It's just, this is what I believe is is categorically right for you. And amazing that he introduced you to Wendy Mandy, who I think I've talked about on this podcast before, I'm sure. She contributed to to a a book that I wrote last year, and she's just an incredible woman. Um, For anyone intrigued as to what she does, she's a shaman, but there's lots involved in that process with acupuncture and reflexology and rattles and all sorts of very interesting sort of practices that she uses. Yeah.
1: And if you, if you saw Ed, you would not think he and Wendy were. Really? Yeah. Wow. Ed was a suited kind of bloke. Mm. You know, Wendy is, you know, incredibly uh, kind of glamorous, uh, you know, blonde hair, but very kind of hippie kind of style of dress. You know, she's, she, she looks just like she's walked off a beach in Ibiza, That's you know, amazing. she'll wear bright coloured caftans and, you know, and Ed was this kind of quite somber dressed bloke you know and so you'd not think that their worlds would collide but they adored each other and mm. um and at, at our wedding along with a guy called Kevin Lidler, who's this incredible physio. I called it the guru's table um, because they were kind of people who fixed us between Kenny and myself. You know, these were the people who kind of kept us going and fixed us. And I think it's really important. To, that's what the book gave me a really lovely opportunity to do, actually, was to talk about that because the idea that we go through life, you know, kind of uh, we wake up beautiful. We, you know, we, we don't have to work out. We don't have to. This nonsense, isn't it? You know, yeah. we all have to kind of do exercise. We have to kind of put yeah. a bit of effort into whether it's the exterior. And we also have to put effort into the interior. You know, yes. it doesn't just happen. You know, peace and tranquility and balance doesn't doesn't you don't just wake up feeling no. great. And so- also that we shouldn't
0: have to plough through whether it is trauma or it is just the day to day being a broadcaster or whatever you're trying to achieve in life or professionally, that we should just be stoic and and push through things on our own. It's really important where you can. It doesn't have to be someone you pay necessarily, but it could be a friend, a mentor that you have in your life that you can lean on, that you Mm. can ask advice and that you can get comfort and solace from people. I think it's really important that that that's promoted as well. Yeah, and
1: I also think now I kind of, because I've always been, because I was so young at Sky, I've always been slightly um, reluctant to admit that I'm a grown up in in you know, because I, w- I was so young there I was on telly I was 22 and now I, I am definitely the old person in the room you know when on most TV shows I go oh god look at all these children I'm working with mm-hmm. and um, and so now it's my turn to do that you yeah. know and um, and I whether it's young presenters who ask my advice or you know I try and if people contact me on social media it's, it's not always easy to kind of reply to everybody in terms of how did you get to where you got to which is in a way why the book is going to be very useful because I can say really this, you'll understand yeah, yeah, kind of where yeah, I got yeah. to. But also just giving people, even if it's half an hour on Zoom, like, you know, I get students quite a lot who are writing thesis on women in sport and things like that. And I always try and do that because I know how much of a difference it made to me when people help me. And, mm. and so time is, you know, the most valuable commodity, isn't it, that we've all got. And sometimes... We don't have enough time, but actually just that half an hour can really change somebody's um journey and their kind the whole of whole career path could be changed yeah. because
0: you've encouraged them or or they've even believed, oh, that is possible for me. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm talking to Gabby Logan. This is a possibility, you know. It's a huge, huge deal. I'm really interested with your introduction into broadcasting because, obviously, you were a gymnast as a teenager at a very, very high competitive level, and it was a trip to the Blue Peter studio that really piqued your curiosity about, wow, these cameras and, and all of this excitement and buzz. Um, what was going on for you that day when you walked into the studio? How did it feel? What made you want to pursue that and continue down that path?
1: It was really um, mind blowing going in, a girl from Leeds, right, coming down the train, going into the, those studios, which you've worked in a million times, yeah. right? And and I'm but still flat sa- yeah, in the <laughs> Soho House. Let's not talk about that. I'm so sad. <laughs> I'm still, you know, um, I suppose so sad that I have to go to Salford to do something like Match <laughs> of the Day when I used to be 25 minutes down the road. But never mind that part of it. This was a building that. Was possibility the endless possibility? You know everything from the news at ten to Doctor Who to French and Saunders was filmed. You know so many shows in between, and Blue Peter came from there. Which at the time was twice a week live telly, five o'clock. It would get millions. You know it was millions. And so me and another gymnast were asked to open the show to the Blue Peter music, and then Yvette Fielding, who was one of the presenters at the time, was going to try out some moves. And it was all to advertise a competition that we were doing at Wembley. So I kind of walked into this building with I'd. on telly, like almost every Saturday, whether I was watching, you know, um, what was it, Zoe's show? Oh, Live um, and Kicking. Lyman and Kicking. Yeah. All the Saturday morning shows used to come from there, and so I was in this building. You know, that was that in itself was mind blowing. Yeah. And then we went into makeup, which, of course, we were 15. We were in there for about three seconds. and they. But this was a proper old makeup yeah. room, you know, with like rows of, you know, you just don't have them anymore, wig makers and everything going on in there. And it was just so intoxicating. And then we go in the studio, a massive studio, with all these lights rigged up and these cameras. And it was just mind-blowing to me. I'd never seen anything like this. And we did the performance and everything. And I walked away that day thinking, that's what that's what I want to do. That's yeah. I want to be in that environment. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I want to be in that environment. So I wrote to the editor and he very kindly wrote back to the British Gymnastics Association and this lovely letter to me and told me to go to university, basically. He said, you know, go and get your, your studies done. And it wasn't really filled with loads of advice, but it was just kind of him to actually take the time. And then years later, when I worked for ITV, he owned a production company. He'd left Blue Peter and i walked on set doing this health and fitness program and he was the editor of the that's show that's so wonderful and he said so you took my advice then <laughs> so
0: lovely I know. but i know that feeling so i remember certainly when i joined the bbc when I was, I, don't know, I was about 19 maybe and that feeling of oh this is the this is where it all happens and you would quite literally see like Hugh Grant walking down one corridor because he yeah. filming something of French, French and Saunas and then Mr Blobby on yeah, the next. Yeah. And you'd go, oh my God. And you'd bump into people in the canteen, in the bar. And it was so, so, so exciting. What I find remarkable is... That the downside of our industry has in no way deterred you because I've been massively put off to the point where I don't really do it much anymore. Like, I'm very happy in my little garden, my little shed, talking to people. I've created a little safety bubble for myself <laughs> where I can create stuff that I really believe in. And if people like it, amazing. If it's not their cup of tea, I'm completely not offended. But I find being in the environment of, you know, you're, you know, say you're on ITV or BBC, wherever, working for a network and it's not yours, you are hired Mm -hmm. by somebody else and that you are there to do a job Mm -hmm. and to do it to the best, best of your ability with no margin for error, with then commentary from the outside world coming at you. I've got to a point, and it might change, I don't know, down the line, but I'm in a a a place now in my life where I can't do that. I'm definitely not up for it. I'm not strong enough to be in that environment. I can dip in and out, but to have that as my main... Thing I just I would crumble if I was if I was still doing it and I think I was resilient enough as a, maybe a teen and in my early twenties to not really pay much attention mm. to it and there was no social media so mm. I could kind of get on with it yeah but that thank God has not put you off because we need you on the telly doing what you do but I'm interested to understand what your resilience is made of and where it comes from and, and how you're able to, to cope in that environment. And I, I I might sound dramatic to some people, but that's the experience of it for yeah, me. Yeah. It's really hostile. Yeah, it is.
1: And, you know, people on social media have seconds. They don't even think about it. And no. they're sending their opinion on something that you've either done, yeah. worn, said, trying to correct you for something, you know, Back in the day, when I first started out, they had to write a letter, so they didn't bother. No one could be asked. No, I mean, the kind of letters I got were usually a bit strange (laughs) and, you know, contained things like sachets of coffee and And half-eaten chocolates. And things, yeah. yeah. Um, And so when social media started and was a thing, I described it in the book as kind of like a Pandora's box. I remember putting my name into the internet, (gasps) stupidly. I mean, I don't think I've ever done it since, right? And honestly, I was, oh... Apparently, I've got really masculine hands, and I've got oh, oh. Apparently, my hair looks like a lion. Oh, and and I'm like, <laughs> got gorgeous and I remember, ridiculous. I remember looking at myself and seeing Ooh. something different because Ooh. this is the way other people are seeing me. And um, Kenny, being you know ever the kind of like you know pragmatic and sensible, just kind of, said that's just a load of nonsense. Forget yeah. it, you know. But of course, there are times when you take things a bit mm. more personally than you should. And I had to ride through a period where you know, I let it affect me a bit too much. And something happened in my career where I, I kind of was effectively ousted from ITV. You know, i lost, you know, I didn't lose my job per se, but I was being demoted from frontline presenting on football by a boss who came and didn't like me. That's fine. Not everybody has to like everybody. And at that point, I was just, okay, I've had enough of this. I want to be in control of my life. I don't want to be at the whim of somebody else's kind of, you know, opinions. And and I was all ready to kind of jack it in then. My babies were a year old. I was going through, imagine having, you know, you've got a year old twins, you're I can't going through kind of all imagine. of that. Well,
0: already after having a baby, you've sort of like. You start reevaluating. Who am I? Yeah. I don't know what one, and you feel a bit lost, and your confidence isn't quite as brilliant. I mean, it's not for everybody, but I think most of my friends I've spoken to definitely felt the same that yeah. you do lose a bit of your confidence mm. and and you're knackered. Your energy yeah. levels are just
1: naturally lower. So that is a tough time, anyway. And it was a really, really tough period. And then. The BBC asked me to go and um, screen test for a show that they wanted to do, which was kind of like a, it was going to be the news night of sport. They called it. It was called inside sport. And they offered me that. And they offered me, basically they offered me a contract and an opportunity to go and almost kind of rebuild myself. And I had to kind of go back to square one in lots of ways um, because I didn't know anybody there. I'd have a really comfy time at ITV, you know, for eight years. I was getting the top jobs. I was doing great things. I had lovely colleagues. I'd met my husband. I I thought that's my life was kind of going in that trajectory yeah. and it was never going anywhere else. And I look back now and realise that that period was so important, you know. And I talk to my kids about it all the time. I talk to people in sport. The disappointments and the times when things don't go so well, the bumps in the road, they're so important in terms of your just the character that you have to kind of draw on, the resilience that you're going to acquire. And I think if I hadn't gone through that, maybe I would have also at some point kind of decided to retreat, I think. But actually going to the BBC having to kind of impress new people and really, you know, earn my spurs with them because they didn't know if they could trust me. They didn't want to just throw me into match of the day if they didn't know me. And all of that, I think, was actually really rewarding. And I'm so glad that I did stick it out because the stuff I love, doing things like the Olympics or the Euros, you know, is so rewarding and so enjoyable. And I would have missed out on those things. But I think then you do start to make better decisions or I start to make better decisions about stuff. I don't need to put myself in that situation or I, you know you kind of learn to trust yourself and your your judgement I think that's the other thing that comes through that early mothering period you know when you start making decisions that are is that going to take me away from home when I don't need to be Yeah, I'm not doing it I'm Mm -hmm. going to do this and being stronger about saying no to people you know for things that Previously, you felt you had to people please or you had to go the extra mile for them. So it was in some ways the best of times and the worst of times, you know, Mm. and um, and and there was thrown into the mix of that as well was a horrible period, which um, we basically were phone hacked and we didn't know. And so there was all sorts of weird stuff going on in our personal lives that, you know, we had journalists banging on the door, accusing us of things that we had. It was all
2: very, it was one of those odd
1: periods of your life where you look back and go It
0: makes me panic to think about it, Gabby. And we had two babies
1: in our arms, you know. I remember one time opening the door and we had a baby each in an arm on a Saturday afternoon and some journalist telling us something that hadn't happened and Us going for a walk afterwards and start you start second guessing kind of like what's going on? Where's all this stuff coming from? And it was a strange period. There was a lot of stuff, you know, that kind of I wish hadn't happened. It would have been lovely to have had a smooth trajectory through, you know, ITV. But I honestly think I'm better at what I do because of that and so yeah. yeah
0: and also i think you end up going off on tangents that you weren't expecting because we all hope for an easy smooth ride and it to be a an ascent to somewhere but actually you end up going down a really interesting path mm. when you know that's why i do all of this stuff i guess i'd completely sort of hit rock bottom in ways and it was like oh i need to do something completely different mm. and i wouldn't have i would probably mm. still be trying to mm. be the best presenter i could possibly mm. be and sort of I don't know, ruining my sanity in yeah. in the
1: long run. So I think, I
0: think the thing as important. well that I'm
1: lucky about with sport is that there's a lot of older men who've been doing this for a long time. So I've always felt to myself, do you know what? They can't kick me out here for being, <laughs> for being too old because Ooh. I'll still always be 12 years younger than Gary Lineker, <laughs> whatever happens. So. Sorry about that, Gary. It's a fact. <laughs> but, you know, and Gary does a great job. Mm. But I think in lots of other areas of telly, I see it with... Some of my girlfriends, yeah. you know, there's a kind of paranoia about, um, well, am I now past myself? Oh, by Oh, you know? yeah. yeah, that still exists
0: for women. Yeah. still exists. And
1: I've always kind of got, OK, I am 50 next year. Right, There's no denying it. That's it. That's, that's a, it's, a, it's a fact. You know, I'm going to have to kind of embrace that and carry on working because I never thought Fern I'd be on telly at this age. Really? I had a boss at Sky who told me I'd be off his screen by the time I was 28.
0: That's
1: nice. Uh, yeah. And then I then thought in my head, 40 if I'm lucky. You know, I honestly had these kind of... Mm. Lines in the sand that I couldn't believe I'd still be. And now I feel like I'll do it for as long as I'm kind of feeling like I can. Well, people I want suppose.
0: knowledgeable, wise, you know, accomplished presenters. Why on earth would you not be sticking around until the moment that you're ready to walk away? And there, are,
1: and there are some really good role models now as well. I yeah. think in, in broadcasting, you know, who've. Whose wisdom and whose, you know, kind of—I mean, you look at Newsnight. I just mentioned it as a um, in dispatches with regard to a sports program, but um, somebody like Kirsty Walk, who's still there anchoring Newsnight, you know, into her sixties, and I—I I think the landscape is changing for women in broadcasting and i think what's you know what's acceptable in terms of getting rid of people you know just because how many times have we seen over the years those partnerships on screen partnerships where the woman is always 25 years younger than the man yes. you know and i think there's you know that is Turning a little bit, so um, and hopefully, as I say, I'll be able to work a bit longer.
0: (laughs) Oh no, you just have to keep on going. I mean, what about how? How did you find? I mean, I've I've obviously read about this in the book, but I'm keen to know how you dealt with the misogyny that you had to go through and experience starting in sports TV because obviously. I just sort of did traditional broadcasting Mm. and there was still an element back in the day of uh, sort of misogyny and how women were treated and how you would have to dress Mm. and, uh, you know, to be accepted as a female Mm -hmm. TV host. But I think there's a whole other underbelly of that mm. within the sports world. How, how did you? Yeah, no, it really
1: that? does draw out the uh, dinosaurs. I mean, Oof. you know, it's it's incredible the kinds of things that people would say to to me on social media, or you know, even newspaper articles. I remember mm. a particular newspaper doing this piece when I was this is early two thousand, so I've been doing it for a few years at this point. And saying how it was disgraceful that women were allowed to invade this landscape because it was the last bastion. It was like the last place that, and now if they were there, then where else, you know, could a man go? And kind of, and this was like two thousand, you know, and I, I, and, 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 I don't have it, any words. No, and I was just reading like kind of, this is ridiculous. But obviously, the, the stuff that really kind of you know can sometimes hurt you and you feel a little bit more um, shifted by is kind of you know when people say slanderous or kind of, you know, mean and uh, you know, nothing to do with what you're doing. It's just to do with the way you look or the way you, um, the, the fact you're a woman yeah. and the sexual kind of, you know, um, s- slights and things like that, that you just feel like this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. this is nothing to do with what I'm doing. So, of course, at the beginning, I I was like, right, I'm going to be the best that I can possibly be so that nobody can criticise me, you know, so you're trying to kind of not make any mistakes and be. And I remember an old boss who was a brilliant ally, a guy called Brian Barwick at ITV. He said, you don't have to load all your questions with so many facts because Mm. I was trying too hard to prove I knew things. You know, he said, I know, you know it. I wouldn't be employing you if you didn't. Just, you know, less is more. And don't be afraid just to ask the simple questions. And I think, but there's, you know, as women, it's like proving that I'm I'm supposed to be in this place and I'm not, you know, I'm not a charlatan. I'm not some kind of, you know, I'm not some fly-by-night person that's not going to commit to the job. And sports viewers are quite discerning like that. Mm. They, they like to know their facts. They like to tell you when you've got things wrong. And I understand that because it's passion and they, they love what they're watching. But um, there have been times where it's crossed a line and it's not acceptable.
2: Ready to pop the question?
0: Let's talk about Kenny. We haven't got to Kenny yet. Your lovely husband who is, I've met him a handful of times. We've chatted on the phone weirdly about dyslexia and ADHD and all sorts of things that he's been sort of helping me learn about, which has been very, very um, handy. But that part of the book was so lovely, like your fateful meeting your husband in a famous bar in London. And that sort of, That nearly didn't another sliding doors moment. Nearly didn't happen, but that again, like changing the course of your life. Yeah,
1: and I did not. I was at that point in my kind of mid twenties where I'd had enough of you know dodgy blokes and Mm. things that weren't working out, and I, I'd made a categorical decision the New Year's Eve about three weeks before I'm not having any more relationships I'm not going out with any dodgy blokes I'm going to just focus on me and have a nice time and my lovely girlfriends and And I was out with my and my good friend Kirsty Gallagher's birthday and another girlfriend we were leaving early because it was about one in the morning which was early back in the day you know and we were like let's have an early night and just as we were driving down to Fulham Road she said should we just nip in for one to a bar called the K-Bar and I was like oh Tamsin, come on let's get home and somehow at 10 to two in the morning, the bouncer was like, not going to let us in because he was like, we're closing in 10 minutes. And somebody I knew was walking behind the bouncer and said, let them in. And so there were so many barriers to my kind of being in that bar that night. And then Tamsin worked at Sky and she knew all the rugby guys because she worked in the rugby department. She went, oh, I did a big piece with those guys last week. They're all Wasp players. So she just went over and chatted to them. I didn't. And then... A guy I knew wanted to buy me a drink, and Kenny kind of muscled over and took the drink <laughs> off him. And, yes, and, Kenny. and I was we just had such a lovely chat. And but anyway, he's got a you know, great Scottish accent, and I was enjoying his voice and kind of listening to him, and and that was it. And he kind of walked off, and then apparently he told his friends he was chatting Gabby Roslin up around the corner. <laughs> and his Brilliant. mate, his mate said, No, you pillock, that's not Gabby Roslin, that's Gabby who does the sport on uh, the ITV. And he came back and went, like, Do you know what? I just and he kind of told me his faux pas. And then the next thing we were in this 24 hour cafe till like 4 in the morning having breakfast just chatting and you know when you meet somebody and you think I could just keep chatting to you forever and ever and and that was kind of the beginning of you know what is now a 21 year marriage so oh. it was all very fateful we knew so many people in each other's worlds, but we'd never actually met. You know, there were loads of people. We even worked for, not worked for, but we were patrons of the same charity, but we just hadn't been to the same charity events. This charity called Sparks, which was um, research into childhood diseases, we both did loads of their events. And there was loads of things that we lived about half a mile from each other. There was, it was really weird that our worlds hadn't yet collided but,
0: yeah. Siding Doors moments are my absolute faves.
1: I mean, I could... I I was walking back to the cab. When the bouncer said no, I said to the cab, hang on, I'm coming. And Tamsin obviously was desperate for one more glass of white wine and was like, no, we're going in. So, yeah. Oh, it's
0: so wonderful. It's a magical moment. I really want to talk to you about cold water as well because the whole sort of last section of the book is very much dedicated to cold water therapy and something that I'm deeply interested in myself. I mean, we could do with it today because it's about eight million degrees in this little box that we're recording in. But obviously you went on the Wim Hof show and... And did a whole bunch of crazy challenges that pushed you to your absolute limits I'm wondering is that something that you still use regularly to help, how does it help, how are you using it? Cold showers
1: definitely Um, although in the summer you can't get your shower to go cold enough you really can't, in fact in this country compared to what they were like in northern Italy, even in the middle of winter our showers are nowhere near as cold as the showers we were having there but we were doing more than showers we were jumping in ice lakes Mm -hmm. and everything else so yeah definitely and Kenny's a real convert to it as well, He, he said he feels he's cheated if he hasn't had a cold Shower in the morning, you know, but he's he's very loud about it. You know, I, I'm, I'm in the bedroom, and I can hear him going, oh, "Oh, yeah, ha, that's oh. like Jesse." Kind of, oh, yeah. are you having your cold shower? Yeah, okay. well done. Um, so I, I'm definitely a convert to that. And in fact, you know, my son as well. He's really he's really into it. And I didn't even know Ruben was doing the breathing, the Wim Hof breathing, before I even knew anything about the show. And. I spoke to the family, kind of family meeting. You know, I'm thinking of doing this show because you like to get the kind of approval of everybody and you don't want to put them in a situation where they, oh God, my mother's going off to do a show mm-hmm. where she's going to be jumping in a lake in a swimsuit and she's nearly 50. What's she thinking? And um, he was like, oh yeah, I do his breathing. I was like, what? And said, yeah, it really helps me if I feel anxious. And so, and it does. It's, I mean, the breathing is amazing. Yeah. And the reason, partly I wanted to do the show because I wanted to push myself somewhere. But also I felt like breathing and cold water therapy are free. So it was something I felt I could talk about afterwards and not feel like I was saying join this community. It's going to cost you a thousand pounds. You know, it doesn't it doesn't cost a thing. No, so everybody can have a cold shower and everybody can learn to breathe, and everybody should. <laughs> yeah, I mean
0: it's funny because Wim has obviously become completely synonymous with cold yeah. water, but the breathing is. More important, almost. Yeah, Yeah, it is, I think. And I know that, you know, you describe in great detail the first time you did that breathing as a group and a whole load of emotion came up and you kind of, all inhibition was lost. Mm. You just kind of went for it. And I haven't had the pleasure of sort of sitting with Wim himself and doing that technique, but I've worked with other breath therapists Mm. where you're intensely doing a a certain breath sequence Mm. for very long periods of time. And it's the craziest experience. You're almost not in your physical body. I've certainly had sort of tingling sensation mm. in my hands and feet and sometimes quite tense arms that sort mm. of end up up here in a sort of fetal position uh, tears uh all sorts of emotion sometimes hysterical laughter mm. it taps into it's almost therapy without talking it taps into something and, and brings it out it's, of you
1: the most incredible yeah. the first breathing session was one of the most incredible moments of my life. And you had visions, didn't you, as well? Yeah, I had. So I I think he did. I don't know how many rounds in the end he did, but like say you would normally do three or four rounds of breathing. I think we might have got close to 10, you know, so we were so deep into this and you can imagine you're being filmed, but I promise you totally unaware of the cameras on top of your head because we were so deep into these meditative breathing exercises and I was having, already having very physical kind of, I went freezing cold and then I was getting tingly and then I was seeing a lot of male stuff, like it was my son and my brother and things like that. And I thought that was going to be the end of it. You know, it was just this, this, and then I had this overwhelming feeling of love. Like if love was a tangible thing, it was all over me. And I stood up and I looked at Tamsin Elthway and I just went over and burst into tears and I said, your mum's here and I've just got to give you all this love and I think she's I mean look back now I think I sound completely mad you know but it was I had to say it you know it was like I've never experienced anything like it and and every time I had something not as profound as that because we didn't go as deep every time I had something quite incredible and the times I've done it at home since what's happened is I just an hour disappears. I can go into the breathing, and I, I say to Kenny, "I'm going to just. We're going out tonight. I'm feeling a bit tired, I'm going to do 15 minutes of breathing. Suddenly, it's an hour, and he's wow. like, he's like yeah, so 'Gabs, you've got to get ready. We're going.' That's so good yeah. that you just kept kept it. Yeah, up I think get... the breathing is, um, like you say, I think it's probably more powerful than the, the cold water. The cold water's invigorating yeah. and undoubtedly has effects on people with, you know, anxiety and definitely can help people to kind of lower stress levels, mm-hmm. and is nuts to swim under. Ice. I mean, that is just.
0: I felt sick reading that bit of the book where you're swimming. How was it? Four meters. Yeah, yeah.
1: No. I'd seen people do it on telly. (laughs) No, that's mad. No, never do that. And then the next thing, I was under the under, and I didn't have as profound an experience as Wim was promising us for that one. He kept saying, "You'll see things," and but other people did. So that for me was just a cold water challenge. For Chelsea Grimes, it was like a baptism. It's like an awakening because she met her four year old self under the water and um, it was just everybody had very different experiences and I think it shows kind of you know that it's not one size fits all some things will really connect with some people and or when you're ready to have those moments I think but the breathing is for me the the kind of big awakening for the next part of my life and something I'll definitely keep doing and try and encourage my kids to and like you
0: say it's free we can all do it and none of us are Really breathing properly day to day anyway, we'll either hold our breath, we'll have a really short shallow breath or we'll hold it down low or we're just breathing really quickly up here mm-hmm. and it's causing all sorts of stress and anxiety. but to do an actual practice where it is sort of more meditative, it's extraordinary to to realize the depths you can go to and mm-hmm. and that's available to us at any one time, and then we can get caught up in all the other stuff that we probably talked about today with you know comparing yourself to other people or worrying what other people think of you or what's going on at work it's extraordinary that that's always down there it's mm. always at another layer and we can we can reach it we can mm. access that and we can help to heal ourselves and help to you know move through difficult challenging times it's um i mean i'm sort of saying it's almost convinced myself to do it more because i either get out of the habit or mm. sometimes with the really deep sort of breathing where you you have a gorgeous experience like you've just described I think, oh my god, it's such hard work. I don't think I can go into that because it is such a physical it workout. I mean, it almost. was
1: really, really profound. Like it, the rest of the day, I felt like I'd been somewhere. Like I, I, yeah. I felt like I'd been to another country. Yeah, you know, I've, I was almost like a jet lagged feeling, and it forged a really lovely connection with Tamsin, who I didn't know before, and you know now. You know, we'll text. We don't see each other enough, but you know, we text and stuff. And because I think when you've gone through something like that, you can't undo that. No, no, no. You know, and um, and her dad even um, he he'd said to uh, her when she rang home uh, because obviously they'd got word back of how everybody was getting on. They were calling our families and. He said, I hear Gabby saw your mum. And, you know, and that brought me to tears oh because they, they weren't together when she died. But obviously he had great love for her. And so I think the fact that there was no doubt in their minds, because they the kind of woman that she was, you know, that she would have, if she could have made herself known to her, she would be there. And Tamsin's worry about doing the show was because her mum died suddenly that the cold water might bring on some kind of, you know, aneurysm or something might happen to her. So she had these doubts about it. But... Um, like the rest of us, came through the experience absolutely with no regrets. I mean, yeah. it was a, I don't know why I said yes in a way. Do you know, you know when you look back <laughs> and you think, what was I thinking? But I'm so glad I did. Oh, it's so, such yeah. an experience. I mean, yeah. it's a
0: beautiful bit of the book to read because it just seemed transformative. And like you say in the book, a perfect, not moment of closure, but a marker of, of that halfway point yeah. you're talking about, that yeah. you you had those sort of realizations and visualizations, and and you've been able to reflect on and acceptance, and acceptance, you know, because yeah. you
1: kind of talk about you know comparing ourselves and all those things, and and genuinely, as I sit here on the precipice of the kind of half century, those things definitely can be dealt with you know I don't feel like the need to do that anymore I don't want to kind of I want friends that I love not that I want to compete with or that you feel like you have to keep up with you know and and trying to kind of move through life with a little bit of a more graceful pace and not you know Mm. not be too rushed and try and you know really hold on to the precious moments and I think I think that's where that experience kind of cemented all of those things those things that you know deep down.
0: I mean acceptance is one of the most important things, uh, so hard to sometimes land on acceptance because cognitively, you know, we're trying to work things out and be pragmatic and, uh, you know, we want a sort of a sequence. Well, I do. I'm a Virgo. I want everything to be sort of linear and to work. And sometimes you do just have to go, mm. this is shit or this was really hard or whatever and land on acceptance. Have you been able to find acceptance with the more challenging parts of life, with grief, with perhaps... You know, your dad's addictions that you talk about in the book. Have you found acceptance around those? Yeah, I I think
1: so, because, as I said at the very beginning, I can't I can understand where he is, you know, and um, I, I feel for him that he misses out on his grandchildren and, you know, lots of great things that we could all do together as a family. And but no family is without its challenges. You know, there is no such thing and that's the acceptance as well. There's no yeah. such thing as this kind of great big, you know, extended family where there are no problems and everybody can, That idea is, you know, is quite fanciful really, isn't it? And you work through those things. I think you talk about kind of life as, a, you know, seeing life as a linear thing. I think as a younger person, I always just think when this happens, life will be good. When this happens, we'll all be okay. When this, and then you realise it's just going to be a continuum. There's a flow yeah. and you have to kind of ride with it. And I think that is part of the process of kind of understanding and accepting say what you know what my dad lives with and what might come down the path you know yeah, exactly and what might come at us
0: i really appreciated that part of the book when you were talking about your dad because we touched on addictions on the podcast but more so with a person dealing with addictions mm. but i think for family members friends people in your close circle, you do feel hopeless. I mean, I'm I'm married to someone that has been clean now for 10 years but has struggled with addiction mm. over the years, and we've talked about it a hell of a lot. Mm. And, of course, you end up then meeting people who have got a similar situation, whether it's a partner, mm. a, a mum, a dad. And it comes with its own set of responsibilities mm. and, um, and challenges and things that you need to work through.
1: Well, I think the thing is, is as a child, and that the reason why I wanted to write about it was because I think as a child of an addict, there's always a point in your life where you think, oh, I'm I'm not good enough. I need to you know, I'm not lovable enough for that person to stop that damaging behaviour. And it, you might be the partner of somebody. And that is an important acceptance. You know, the, And it took me a long time to get there. But to go, there's nothing about me that is so bad. I can't be loved because I'm, you know, because I'm causing this behaviour. or I'm not helping to stop this behaviour. And it's not about me. And then when you get to that point, I think it's it's really where you can have healthy relationships, actually, and yeah. you can grow. Because, of course, you know, I would, from an absolutely kind of selfish point of view, I'd love him to be with us more and do things with us. But that's not going to happen. So I can't, you know, I can't change that. Mm, I mean, that's
0: the most difficult bit, knowing that when somebody is in addiction, you are out of control. You cannot fix them or save them or force them or have an intervention where you force somebody to to change their direction in life. Mm. It, it very much has to be when the time is right for mm. them. You know, I was keen to talk about that section of the book because I think there'll be so, so many people out there who will be related to or love dearly somebody who is struggling mm. with addiction. And I think you do feel very alone. Obviously, there are there are setups like Al-Anon that you mm. can be part of a, a, a group and, and hopefully that brings you some sort of connection or to, mm. to feel less alone. But I think for a lot of people out there, it does feel like it's a it's it's never going to change and nothing's mm-hmm. ever going to get better but I think again
1: we land on acceptance mm. and that goodwill and, and hope and prayers and you just have to keep letting them know that you love them yeah and th- they could do with that what they like but it's not you know it's not your job at the end to turn them around when they want to reach out for help if you can be there great but understand that they might change their mind you know mm-hmm. and And they might let you down if that's the way you kind of perceive it. And I think you do get to a point where you go, okay, I'm going to protect myself now and I've got to I've got to move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you have to. But I thought it was a really brave thing to write about and a really beautiful thing to write about, you know, like the rest of the book. I loved reading it. It took me about four days. I couldn't put it down. I was just literally romping through it it's thank so you. brilliant thank it's you so, so brilliant and thank you it's just I loved talking to you today Gabby it was and a, a joy
1: thank you for having me on your incredibly successful and brilliant podcast in your absolutely lovely garden shed really hot shed glamorous <laughs> garden shed that's about 900 degrees I've got um, like I a think... sweaty upper lip my ribs <laughs> like every every part of me let's just we'll
0: cut there and we'll just chuck it. we'll just go and do a whim off and jump in the fridge or something oh thanks Gabby thank you <laughs> 900 degrees was honestly an understatement. We had to peel ourselves off the chairs after that chat, but it was so worth it. I loved being able to talk to Gabby, especially, as I said, about the other side of addiction, being the person having to watch someone you love go through it. It's incredibly tough, so I really appreciated that part of the book and the conversation today. Thank you so much to Gabby. Her book, The First Half, is out on October the 13th. Well, I'll be back next week with another gorgeous guest so if you're not already make sure you are following Happy Place on your podcast feed so you can join us for that one and if you want more Happy Place chat in the meantime come and join our community come and say hello on Instagram at Happy Place Official we absolutely love hearing what you're doing to look after yourself until next time a huge thanks again to Gabby to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and to you I love you very much chat soon <laughs>